Hey everyone, it's Cassie. I just wanted to hop on and give a quick note about today's episode. We did have just a few internet issues at the very beginning of our recording, which led to some wonky sound for about a minute. It does work itself out, so please stick in there, hang with us. I know you are going to absolutely love everything Dr. Hawkins has to say. Thanks so much for being here and let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Hashtag Anxiety Podcast. I'm Cassie, here with the amazing Lola B. Hi everybody. And we have an awesome guest today, Dr. Nicole Hawkins. I'm so excited to chat with her. Um, Our disclaimers before we get started, there might be some adult language in this podcast. It happens- I'm going to try and keep that to a dull roar because Dr. Hawkins is here. So I'm going to try not to (laughs) throw the F-bomb out several times. I'll do my very best. I'll try to be on my best behavior too, but we'll see. We'll see what I make no promises. Um, The other disclaimer that we always have is that neither Lola B nor myself are licensed mental health or clinical professionals, but today we do have one with us. So I am going to read your amazing bio, Dr. Hawkins, and we're just going to chat a little bit about What's it like in the therapy office? So Dr. Hawkins is a clinical psychologist and is the chief executive officer at Center for Change. She is a specialist in eating disorders and body image and has provided clinical expertise at Center for Change since 1999. As a side note, Center for Change is an absolutely incredible treatment center. Um, Dr. Hawkins developed a comprehensive body image program that focuses on the media, diet industry, plastic surgery, childhood issues, and learning to appreciate one's body. And she's led these groups for the inpatient and residential patients at Center for Change. She is a certified eating disorder specialist, supervisor, and has published several, several articles and presents regularly at national and regional conferences. So thank you so much, Dr. Hawkins, for being here. Oh, yeah. Thank you for inviting me. I think you just invited me because you both know I have a lot of anxiety myself. So you (laughs) figured it would be great to put me on your podcast to talk about my own anxiety. I I just I just knew that was probably the reason. (laughs) Well, that's maybe a little bit of the reason, but not entirely. So, yeah, the cat's out of the bag. Both Cassie and I know Dr. Hawkins for quite some time and she's a good friend and I will. I will make this disclaimer right off the bat that I, my anxiety is like a nine and a half and I have peed 10 times in the last 30 minutes because I'm so nervous and anxious about this. And I was thinking about it before I got on. It's like, the reason I'm anxious is because I know you and I, I care about you and I respect you. And if I didn't, I don't think I'd be nervous about it at all. So I'm thrilled to have you here and thanks for being a good friend to, to come on. I value your opinion. We value your opinion. And you can certainly talk about your own anxiety if you want, but we also will let you off the hook. You don't have to, and you can just give us all the professional stuff. So maybe a good place to start would be, you know, kind of how you got here. So, you know, clearly you're an expert in eating disorders and eating disorders and anxiety often go hand in hand, but what kind of led you down this path to, to, to become a psychologist and to treat eating disorders and, 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 and all the things that go along with that. Yeah, well, you know, it was never my intention. I, I was not planning on being a psychologist, even in high school. My, my plan was I worked on the governor's campaign to senator's campaign. I went to Washington, D.C. my senior year. I was into politics. That's what I was going to do. And, but I have always been an anxious kid. You know, there's no such thing as an anxiety gene. We don't 
but we do think you could inherit some of the anxiety and that a lot of us could have anxiety temperaments. So I like to, to discuss it and I like to use the analogy of the turtles versus the hare. And if you look at temperaments, which I'm a turtle, turtles are harm avoidant. We move through life very slowly. We look at all the details. We're, we're very apprehensive. And so when you think about anxiety, anxiety is when people are a little afraid of the world, the uncertainty of the world. So think about our world right now. We have a lot of uncertainty with COVID, with our health. There's a lot of uncertainty. So a lot of us are experiencing anxiety just naturally, and that's very normal. But for me, it was my temperament. I just was always this people pleaser, harm avoidant, didn't want to do anything wrong. And then if you hurt someone with anxiety, like a turtle, we go into our shell and it's very hard to get us out. We need a lot of reassurance and coaching. That's why most of us end up in therapy, right? We need a coach <laughs> to get us out of our shell. So um, that was kind of my temperament. I went away to college. I didn't feel like I fit in. I'm already this anxious, worrying kid. And I started restricting my food and dieting. Mm -hmm. And we know for a lot of people, and it didn't help that my university told me not to gain the freshman 15. Um, so that that kind of triggered yeah. that. Yeah. But, but you know, if any of you have experienced, once you go on a diet um, and start restricting, it can bring our, our anxiety down. It works for us initially, but then our anxiety gets worse. And then we have to do more and more behaviors to bring our anxiety down. Um, for me, I ended up developing a full-blown eating disorder. And once I did that, my thoughts of politics and everything else went out the window. I needed to then major in psychology to figure myself out, right? Like I needed to know <laughs> what was going on. Right. And so, so then that's kind of how I ended up in psychology and, and ended up being a a psychologist. So in a sense, you know, I guess you could say my own anxiety kind of put me down that path of yeah. trying to have to figure everything out. So you mentioned that there's temperaments. Are there other things that contribute to anxiety? Why do some of us have it? Some don't, some have it significantly more than others. Is there a continuum there and what can kind of bounce us along the continuum? You know, there is a for all of us, it's very normal to have some, some form of anxiety. If you go to a doctor's appointment before a podcast, you're worried if we're going to lose internet. My thing was already warning me weak internet connection, just to get your anxiety a little bit higher. Um, so it's very normal that we all have anxiety. About 30% of the population though, has significant anxiety. And, and so we know that temperament can be related to that. We know that environmental factors, we know childhood experiences of trauma can be related to anxiety, but we know too uncertainty in the world. That's why with, with COVID and that, we've seen significant increases in anxiety amongst the general population because there's a lot of fear of the unknown. Yeah. Um, but other things to think about too that can lead to anxiety is caffeine you know, we, and medications. So here I'm a highly anxious person. I drink a whole bunch of caffeine. I'm making my anxiety 10 times worse. And so there's maybe sometimes little things we do in our daily lives that contribute to our anxiety as well. But no, there's no secret, you know, ingredient of why we're anxious, but we definitely know temperaments contribute. 
We know there's genetics. We'll probably never discover this anxiety gene though. That's just not going to be what we're going to discover. Right. Cassie, is there a comment that you'd like to make about coffee? I'm just wondering. I read in college an article about caffeine in the morning, coffee specifically in the morning can help kind of lower your anxiety. And so I am a morning coffee drinker and it could totally be a placebo effect, but I feel so much more grounded when I have coffee. Also, I'm not willing to give up coffee. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I also am a pretty high consumer of um, coffee and in the morning. And for me, it's part of my routine though. Mm. And so again, if it can be part of a morning routine that is relaxing and settling to you, that could help ground you. But then if we overdo it, that's when we could feel jittery and shaky and wonder why. But it's just because we've had a lot of caffeine, not because we're anxious. But yeah, I think when we look at ways to decrease our anxiety, those routines, those rituals can really help ground us in the morning. So I think your coffee, I'm I'm giving you basically the okay for you and I to drink coffee in the morning Um, and, and maybe a glass of wine at night, right? It's those routines that help ground us and give us that almost that safety that we feel at comfort and at home, if that makes sense. Okay. Lola B and I've talked about different things can cause anxiety for us. Even though we both have anxiety, there are different things that make us more anxious. So coffee, I don't think is one for me, but, or the podcast uh, until I had to read your bio for some reason (laughs) reading in public. I always have these flashbacks to like, you know, fourth grade when you're like, you pull, we used to pull popsicle sticks. So like, all right, it's your turn to read. And I'd be like, oh my gosh. So I used to always read ahead. So I'd know what to say whenever I was called on. And yeah. And now I thought, oh my gosh. I think it's a common experience. I used to sit in meetings. I used to have a director that would make us read it loud in this meeting. I would literally count paragraphs to figure out when I had to read. So then I'm not even paying attention to the the meeting or the content. I'm just making sure I can pronounce every word, right? (laughs) So I think for a lot of us, and and maybe the, the educators in the world would say, well, that's some healthy anxiety you all need to experience in school. I don't know if we all need to experience that anxiety. <laughs> I'm still harm avoidant. I don't care what anybody says. And I'm going to yeah. avoid that as, as often as I can. Don't you think so, that exactly. healthy level of anxiety just like existing? I'm pretty sure I experience that on the daily. I don't need any more. I'm good. I'm, I got yeah. that healthy dose naturally. I yeah, agree. Exactly. I agree. Exactly. So Dr. Google tells me that... Um, that that Dr. Hawkins cannot cure me from my anxiety today in this podcast. I was hopeful. I was really hopeful we'd walk <laughs> away and be done. But Dr. Google says, no, it takes work. It takes management. So I wanted to talk a little bit about what it's like in the therapy office, what it's like to go see a therapist. We have, we've talked before, Cassie and I, about kind of a, a commonality among a lot of folks who have anxiety, just picking up the phone or, or, or making that initial call to schedule an appointment, how scary that is, because we don't know what to expect. What's it going to be like? Are, are we going to like them? Is it going to, are they going to judge us? You know, it's, it's, I've had a positive experience in therapy. Cassie's have a positive experience in therapy, but there are lots of people who have not, or who are too afraid to even give it a try. So can you speak to that a little bit about what that process is like and what your, your suggestions might be to find a therapist that's a good fit? 
Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think, I think you're exactly right. Like just making that first phone call can be so hard. And what, what my heart goes out to the people right now that are making that first phone call and, and then they find out the waiting list to get into outpatient therapy is three to six months long. Right. And so it's already so hard to make that call and then you feel that rejection. And so if, if you're experiencing that, please keep on calling more therapists, like, you know, and, and be patient with the process because right now there are a lot of long waiting lists to get into therapy. But, you know, I know when I, the first time I went to therapy, um, I was scheduled to see a therapist. I'm sitting in the waiting room and someone walks in that I know. And at that point, I was the president of the psychology association at my university. The person looks at me and says, do we have a meeting today? Because she didn't know I was in there for therapy. And I literally like pulled out my Franklin Covey planner that I had back in the day. And I says, oh my gosh, we don't have a meeting. And I got up and left and didn't go to my first therapy appointment. That's how anxious I was, right? I was so embarrassed to even be in the lobby. I have some of my patients that wait out in the car. They don't wanna be in my lobby. They don't wanna be seen. Um, there's a lot of shame and judgment. So I completely understand that, that going to, to therapy can be hard, but please know there's no right or wrong way to do therapy. When you go into your first session, you can focus on one issue you can do a get to know you and tell them your whole you know, life history. I like to have people give me sometimes a, a sketch of, well, tell me when you were born, how many siblings, where'd you grow up? But it's really your time. You may go and just cry the whole hour. And so know that the good news is, is there's no right or wrong way. And I think for most people, by session two or three, you're going to know if that person's a good fit for you. And if you're not feeling comfortable in that session, if you're not able to be honest and vulnerable, I'd say it's not a great fit. And maybe to keep on looking, try out a few therapists. I always tell my adolescent patients, because they're unwilling to go to therapy. They usually don't want treatment. I say, interview a few therapists because it's the relationship. We know from the research, it doesn't matter if you go to an EMDR, a DBT, and act therapist. It is that therapeutic relationship that is the most healing of anything, no matter what their background is, or if they have a PhD or a master's degree, can you connect with them? Can you be vulnerable with them? Can you be open with them? And so I always tell my patients, don't want to do what I did. I, I went to a therapist and I made sure I researched. She's retired now, so she, hopefully she's not listening. I researched the very best psychologist because if I was going to go to treatment, I had to have the best, right? So I researched the best. I had to private pay for her and I went every week and handed her my money and sat down in the chair and lied to her every week. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because so you didn't feel that, comfortable yeah. to tell her your truth? No, yeah. no. And I was too ashamed. Mm. I was too ashamed and um, I was too embarrassed. I was going through a divorce and I had all this shame. And so I just sat and lied every session. So I always tell my patients, don't do what I did. Like, you know what? Don't go to therapy if you're not ready. Don't go if someone's forcing you to go. I mean, we're all adults, we, but 
but make it your time, make it your safe place and, and give it a couple sessions and see how it feels. But it's totally normal to be anxious. I have some patients that come in with notes and they'll read me notes. I have some that ask for homework. It's completely your space. It's, it's what works best for you. So I guess that's the good news is there's no right or wrong. Well, don't go lie like I did. That's definitely a wrong <laughs> way to do therapy. Um, but there's no right or wrong way. It's, it's your space, your time. You can, it's completely fine to ask the therapist about their background, what they specialize in, um, get to know your therapist a little bit. Uh, I, I definitely do a lot more self-disclosure than others because I'm a feminist psychologist, but just kind of finding, again, what fits for you. Right. I, you know, the first time I went to therapy, I had a, a female therapist whom I ended up really liking, but I said to her, the first words out of my mouth were, I'm not going to be here five years from now. I'm not going to be in this office still having therapy with you five years from now. I want to get it done. So I want you to know that from the get-go that I'm happy to pay you for now, but this is not a long-term relationship. I want to get it done. And she was great. She, she, you know, she totally appreciated the candor. She's like, that's what I want for you as well. I don't intend to have this be prolonged. Let's let, I love that you're wanting to work. Let's get after it. Let's do it. So I really liked that, that she was willing to listen to me because I just, I just didn't want it to take forever. I didn't want to feel like I was going to be in therapy forever. Now, that being said, I'm a huge fan of therapy and a huge fan of therapists. And I think it can be really helpful in your life's journey. But for me in that particular situation, I, I was there for a specific reason. I had talked about this before on another episode, Dr. Hawkins, but I, you know, I was trying to decide if I was going to stay or go in terms of my marriage. And I didn't want her to make the decision for me. I wanted her to help me get strong enough to make the decision myself. And oh, so I didn't awesome. want it. I didn't want to still be trying to figure that out five years down no, the road. You gotta, right? you, gotta, you gotta decide that pretty quickly, right? You don't right. Wanna, don't want to make that decision over five years. That's right. That's exactly right. The other thing that I really liked about her is that I told her a, a story about something that had transpired in my relationship. And she said, that is fucked up. And I loved it. I loved it because number one, that is the therapist for me. And because she speaks my language. And number two, she totally validated what I was thinking, you know, you can tend to sit in the therapy chair, I think, or, or maybe ruminate or worry about it in advance that people will think you're crazy and that you're the only one who has those experiences. And then to tell your story and have somebody validate that, not that I'm advocating everybody has to use the F-bomb, but for me, <laughs> it was so validating to have her say, I totally get it. That is not okay. And I think yeah. having, having therapists validate that. And, and, and again, if, if that was not my experience, then I would have had to start over and find somebody who, who did speak my language and who I felt comfortable and connected to. So agree that people go into therapy, not wanting to do this long-term, like I need results. What, what am I paying for dude? But at the same time, it's great to have somebody on your team validating whatever it is you're going through. And sometimes I go to therapy. I, I see a therapist weekly. I love him and I hate him sometimes. And he's great and he's <laughs> awful. And sometimes I show up fine and I'm crying and I'm like, what, are, what's even happening right now? And sometimes I come in with my notes and my agenda and we get very off topic and it's okay. Going in with like 
a preconceived notion of like, okay, this is how therapy is going to be. Just anybody listening, it, you could be surprised. Like it, it could be so different than you think it's going to be. And it's generally always lovely. I also love it when my therapist drops the F-bomb. I'm like, I know, right? Okay, yes. I think the other thing too, it, for me is, is, you know, I want a therapist who's going to kick my ass a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because yeah. you're spent, right. You're spending this money, you're spending your time. You finally made this decision to do what you need to do. So you don't want a yes man or a yes woman or a yes person that just agrees with you and, you know, validates everything. You want somebody who's going to kick your ass a little bit, I think, and say, okay, but have you considered this? And what about this perspective? Am I on the right track, Dr. Hawkins? Would you say that's something that would be helpful? Yeah, I mean, it depends on your personalities. Again, it's up to the therapist to kind of read what you need because some patients, if I assign them a whole bunch of homework, they're not going to come back. Mm. Yeah, that's true. But other patients are like, you didn't assign me any homework today. (laughs) You didn't follow up. And so again, it's kind of really being there and a a good therapist is going to read you and is going to know what you need. They're going to be flexible in their style so that they can give you kind of what you need at the time. I mean, a a lot of the therapists that I work with are all very eclectic. They're trained in a lot of different backgrounds. And so we literally have that toolbox where we can give the patient what we need. You know, I, 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 when I do speaking on, for example, sometimes binge eating disorder, those patients, I have to be very careful. If I kick their ass too hard, they won't come back. Yeah. So where the anorexic is like, give me all the assignments. You're not keeping up with me. Knowing what that patient needs, having the communication and saying, are you getting what you need out of these sessions? Yeah. You know what, what, what you're coming to me, I need to ask you what you need. And so I think using that kind of sacred 50 minutes, an hour to really get your needs met is pretty important to me. I like that you use the word sacred because that's how it feels. You know, you're really vulnerable in that time and space. So you also said toolkit and I wanted to circle back about that because we've talked about a surf kit um, that, that Cassie and I both use, we call it a surf kit to ride the wave of anxiety. And we had a, a podcast about what are things in our surf kits that we use and, you know, tools and tips and tricks, and they might be physical things like a, a worry stone would be a, a physical thing you'd have in your toolkit. Uh, Cassie has snacks in her toolkit because she, <laughs> she's figured out that that's important. So do you have some things that you would recommend for for your patients, for their surf kit or things that you like to use yourself? Yeah, yeah, I have some right in my office. I'll just grab some. Nice. Because these are just what I use all the time. So like I have lavender oil always. So even before I got on this, I smelled a little bit of it. And then not to say I have bad bad breath, but I sometimes do. And so I put it in my mask because you know, I'm masked everywhere. I like to put oils in my mask And that helps like before I went, I ran a group today, I put a little oil in my mask and I went and ran group. And then I'm a big one on stone. So this one says trust. Um, This one's a little larger than I like because I like to keep them in my pocket. When I get anxious, like it's a worry stone and I can rub it and I can ground it. Another thing I do, you know, now that I'm trying to be more professional and I can't pull out oils and rocks, 
you can find other ways to ground yourself. So I have these bracelets. One is each for one of my, my kids. And somehow my husband ended up with the biggest one. I don't, that's not even remotely accurate, but, <laughs> but I use these, these ground me and I wear them every day. You won't see me not wear them. Mm-hmm. So these are like little things. Cause when I was younger and anxious, I had sit in class and, and pick at my split ends to bring my anxiety down. That's really not functional as an adult, or I'd maybe kick my, my leg under the table that gives us sometimes more anxiety if we're frantically kicking, right? Yeah. So we can do yeah. some of those self-soothing things of maybe slowly rocking our leg. So those are small things, but we can do other things like looking at when do you get most anxious in the day? For a lot of people, it's at the end of the day when our battery is drained. You know, you think about your cell phone battery, when it gets drained, all of a sudden we panic and we're looking for a charger. How do you recharge yourself at the end of the day? Do you recharge yourself during the day so you don't let your battery get completely um, down and in the red? Because when we're super anxious or we're super tired, that's when we get more reactive. That's, you know, when we don't make as good of decisions. That's when I snap at my kids. That's when I'm frustrated with the dog, right? And so really thinking, what can I do throughout the day to ground myself to do some self-care. So it could be little things like for me, creating a, a safe space at home. Um, since I am a turtle, or I also describe it as orchids, we're kind of highly sensitive. We care about smells. I have scented candles around my house. So it's almost a ritual that when I walk in my house, I light my scented candle. So just any kind of things like that, that can kind of create this in- environment that helps to calm you um, I think is a great thing as well. So when I think of toolkits, even thinking of a, a positive affirmation book, having a, a favorite playlist that you've made ahead of time, that you know when you're having a hard time, you put in the playlist and it, it's a positive playlist. Don't do what my daughter does. Her boyfriend broke, broke up with her and she made this playlist of all their favorite songs that just makes her sob. Now <laughs> that's good if you sometimes want to, you know, get, get in touch with your feelings. But if you're trying to calm yourself down, you want a soothing playlist of your favorite songs or your favorite Netflix shows that you can go kind of literally sit and binge watch. Yeah. Just having this routine, even for me, like going on a ride and blasting my music, that can really calm me down. Um, so having things ahead of times, I even have my patients sometimes take an index card and write down how they're going to cope when they start feeling anxious or having a panic attack. They pull that out. It's right there. It's in their purse. It's in their pocket. So I'm not having to come up with what I'm going to do once I'm anxious. I already have a plan. It's already written down. And I don't judge myself anymore. I used to be so embarrassed when I was anxious. Now I embrace it it makes me a fabulous employee. Like I'm really good at my job because I'm so anxious, right? Right. So maybe instead of being ashamed of ourselves and dismissive of our anxiety and go, what's wrong with me? Why am I still struggling with this? Go, this is kind of awesome. I kind of like my anxiety. It helps me at a a lot of things. Um, And then even predicting times for us that we're going to be anxious and saying, you know, this is an anniversary date, or this is, you know, the date of, of my father's passing, or this is a date of trauma and, and, and actually predicting that we could have some more anxiety and depression 
helps us get through it. And so doing some of that self-care before. So I really think it's kind of taking active steps that, hey, I know I have anxiety. That's okay. That's kind of cool. I just need to find some ways to handle that. So I know things when I go to parties, I know I'm going to be super anxious. And I know the first 10 minutes is going to be the hardest. But once through that, that's okay. And I almost have a plan of how am I going to get through that first 10 minutes? And then I kind of settle myself. And so just knowing yourself and, and letting go of the judgment and just saying, Hey, this is who I am. This is kind of cool. I love them. There was a lot that you added that I wouldn't have thought of for my surf kit. So I, I think that's awesome. Um, we've talked a little bit in the past about, I have two daughters, they both have anxiety, but they show up very differently for both of them. They have this, they're, they have the same set of parents and they couldn't be more different. Uh, Cassie has dogs that are similar in that way, right? That, that are, you know, they're, they're different. The one that's the, has the anxiety the most like me, I feel like I know how to be, um, a good ally for her, a good support system for her, but the one who it has really different anxiety, it shows up differently. Sometimes I wonder how to best support her. So I'm wondering if you have any tips, maybe just in general for family members, how do you help support someone, especially if you don't know what's going on, if you, if you don't have a similar uh, level of anxiety, like, you know, maybe you're a parent who doesn't have a ton of anxiety, but you've got a really anxious kid. You know, what's a great, what are some great tips to help us as parents to be supportive to our highly anxious kids? Yeah, well, I'm a parent of a highly anxious kid. I, I have anxiety. My husband has, has anxiety and we've created a super anxious child, right? <laughs> highly, highly anxious kid that's had ARFID and and all that. And he reacts very different. Um, as, as you were kind of saying, my son with his anxiety, he gets angry and he lashes out mm. where I internalize, I go in, he goes out. Right. And so a lot of my interventions fail with him. So the one thing I would say for parents, what we do is we ask our child and, and again, to say, Hey, so that just didn't go well. I usually have to give my son 20 minutes to calm down. And then I reapproach and say, you know what? What could I have done better to support you? Mm. So they need to tell us there's no magic pill. And it's the same when I work with eating disorder patients. I need that patient to help their parents understand what's going to work best for them. Right. And so asking your child, how can I best support you? And those, those words alone then just validate them that you're, you're knowing that they're struggling and you're wanting to help and you're recognizing you don't have all the answers. Yeah. And they're helping us. They're helping us figure it out. And so, and I'll sometimes say, you know what, bud, mom did not handle that very well. Mm. How can I do better next yeah. time? Yeah. Because I'm learning and I'm assuming your anxiety or, or your reactions are going to be the same as mine and they're not right. Well, it humanizes us also in the eyes of our kids when they can see that we're not perfect and we know we're not perfect and we can say out loud, gosh, I didn't handle that very well. So yeah, and I think, I'm sorry, right? Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry goes such a long way. I think if we could all learn to say, I'm sorry, all the litigation in this country would go down, right? <laughs> the risk 101 classes is just learning to validate and say, I'm so sorry. doesn't mean I did anything wrong, but I am so sorry that happened. Yeah. I'm so experience that right and so just validating what they're going through I think is a huge 
step. And, you know, and of course, if you have a very anxious child, I put my son in therapy during COVID and it was all via Zoom. And so it's the therapist, it's me and my husband and my son. My son would not get in on camera for all seven of the therapy sessions. <laughs> so I'm super embarrassed. I'm like, yeah. oh, son, can you come in the room? He never would. But you know what? The fact that he could hear me talking to his therapist, the fact he knew I was invested in helping him, it actually helped. Wow. So we just, our, our kids need to know that we're here, we're learning, we're listening, we're present, and we're not always going to do the right thing, but we're not giving up on them. And, and that I think can go a long way in, in, um, in decreasing their anxiety and knowing that they can get through it too. Right. I think that can apply to friendships, partnerships, and another yes. benefit I think of therapy is when you are somebody with anxiety and if you have tried to communicate what you need and it hasn't landed or you know the person in your life is like I, I don't get it whatever that makes you even more anxious so a therapist can help you not only identify the things that you might need and how to communicate it to somebody who maybe has different anxiety or maybe doesn't have anxiety at all and doesn't get it I think that's another huge benefit I love yeah, Dr. Exactly. Hawkins what you said that you have a house and you share that house with a spouse and kids and you still have created a sacred space within your own home. I think that's one of the things a lot of people don't do for themselves, especially if they share space with other people. And it's something that I think is so important. My rule is I have to have my own room at some, wherever I live, like my own room with a door that closes. And I was that way when I lived by myself, I'm that way living with somebody. It's so important to have just like a sacred space to kind of come in, whether it's a closet, an entryway, and your own room. I, I love that you also brought that up. Yeah. And just even taking 10 minutes to your, for yourself, right? Just to go in and kind of take some deep breaths and reassure yourself in, in your own space, I think is so important. I mentioned to Lola B, I don't know if I've talked about this on a podcast, but I also do EFT tapping. So when I'm out in public or traveling or flying, I often am in a public bathroom, like tapping, tapping it out. So <laughs> like I got to pee again, but really I'm just like, I need a break from everything. Really, you're just right in there. Yeah. I got to get my EFT system calmed back down. I want you to do yeah. a podcast on that, Cassie, because Cassie and I years ago ended up in the same city at the same time. And we went to see an EFT tapping kind of demonstration or whatever, a, a little um, course on it. It's fascinating to me. And, and of course you're, you're all good at it and stuff. I'd love to have you show everybody what you do and, and how that can really reduce your anxiety. Cause it's a cool thing. Yeah. It's one of those grounding techniques that you were right. asking Dr. Hawkins, just easy. You can do it anywhere. In the yeah, bathroom exactly. at the airport. In the, in the toilet. Yeah. At the, at the <laughs> Though this is so ridiculous at how anxiety works because you know, in an airport, there's always the line. And I always am so anxious that I'm taking too much time because I know people have to pee and have to get to places. So sometimes it's counterproductive. That's it. They'll wait, Cassie. They'll, They'll wait. wait. That's right. That's right. It's your sacred time. You take it if you need it. Well, we are so grateful you'd spend the time with us today, Dr. Hawkins. Thank you so much. I want to give a shout out to Center for Change. It's, as Cassie said, it's an amazing eating disorder program. Dr. Hawkins is the CEO there and has been there for well, 22 years. Is that right? Something yeah, I don't like change. I'm so anxious. <laughs> Routine. I always say you could kidnap me because you could predict where I'm going to be at every time. 
That's good to know. <laughs> yeah, folks can find Center for Change at centerforchange.com. Uh, Dr. Hawkins is on Instagram at uh, Dr. Nicole Hawkins. It's Dr. Nicole Hawkins, so you can find her there. She posts really great stuff that's uplifting and informational. She does a ton of research-based um, posts that give great information, so folks can find you there. Thanks everybody for for joining us today. We're so happy you could, and thanks to Dr. Hawkins especially. Yeah, thank you for having me, you guys. It was wonderful. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find us on Instagram at hashtag anxiety podcast. Hashtag is spelled out. And you can find me, Lola B, at rrlolab.com. And you can find me at coachwithcassie or at cassiegob.com. We'll see you next week.